0: superhumanize accelerated evolution one of the things i love most about podcasting is having the opportunity to talk to some of the most interesting people on the planet and when people ask me what i do i often say well i'm a professional sponge i absorb all the stories and the knowledge and i just become better every time with every guest that's what i do And today I'm speaking to someone who has tickled my brain and helped it expand for years, and who is a true polymath, out of the box thinker, and paradigm breaker the one and only James Alticher. He is a famous American entrepreneur, angel investor, hedge fund manager, podcaster, and best selling author. He's also a stand up comedian and a chess master. He has founded or co-founded more than 20 companies and has invested in over 30. He's also published more than 20 books, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Choose Yourself, and his latest book, Skip the Line, in which he busts the 10,000 hour rule of achieving mastery and offers us a mindset and dozens of techniques to inspire us to pursue our passion, our purpose, and to quickly acquire the skills we need to succeed and achieve our dreams.
1: Wow. What what a great intro. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on your podcast just to hear that intro, first off.
0: Well, uh, it's awesome to have you on the podcast, James. I mean, your work and presence in the cultural discourse has fascinated me for a long time. So it truly is a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you.
1: Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you.
0: You know, let's talk about skipping the line and why this is such a difficult concept for many of us, you know, culturally and biologically. um, Most of us are taught how to think, how to be and how to act since we're very little. You know, what is acceptable behavior to be part of the group? And it goes much deeper than that, too, though. It's it's um, it goes deeper than social norms. It's we're actually biologically wired for this in a tribal sense in order to survive. And you also go into that in your book. Can you lay it out for us?
1: Yeah, I think, first off, we're we're in a very interesting time right now, obviously, with this pandemic. And in general, we live in interesting times, as they say. And one of the things that's interesting about right now is that people have realized it doesn't exist, the, the normal career that existed in the 20th century in the 1900s where you go to school maybe you get a a, an advanced degree you work for a company for 40 years you retire uh, you 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 move to warmer weather and you um spend the rest of your life fishing like that doesn't really happen i don't know if that ever really happened but that was kind of like the mythology of the american career arc Uh, and but people people change interests people start off when they're in their twenties and they're like, you know what I majored in, I don't know, geology, but I'm interested in, uh, uh, being a chef or, you know, or maybe you've been an accountant for 20 years and you're in your forties and suddenly you realize, Oh, I'm, I'm, I love sports. Can I do something in the sports career or, or I want to be a screenwriter or I want to, um, start up, a, a, a you know, a food truck business or whatever, you know, you change, people change interests now and, but then they're told you know and first off anything worth being interested in anything that's exciting and that you're passionate about and that you love chances are it's very difficult to to master it's also very competitive because if you love it there's other people probably who who love that industry or love that skill and are also have been spending their whole lives trying to learn it and it's very difficult to monetize because there's a lot of competition and so First off, we hear these academic myths about, oh, well, you got to spend 10,000 hours doing something in order to be good at it. You know, I'll get to that in a second. But the real resistance comes from the people who are already in the industry. Like, let's say you want to switch to being, I'll just make it up, you want to be a switch from being an accountant to a best selling novelist. I'm just making this up. I'm not saying this is what people want to do. But a lot of people will tell you, hey, man, I've been doing trying to write a best-selling novel for 20 years, you know, get to the back of the line. Like, it's really hard. Everybody says they want to write a best-selling novel. Don't think you're going to be the one. And it's the people in the industry who should be encouraging you that are telling you to basically, you can't do this and you can't skip the line. Like, when I was in my mid-40s, I wanted to start being a stand-up comedian. And I was really obsessed with it. Like, Like, when you're passionate about something, you get obsessed with it and there's a reason for that too which is that if you love it's not that you should you get you're happier doing what you love doing it's that everything is about energy so if you love what you're doing then you can focus all of your energy on getting better at it if you don't love what you're doing then part of your energy is spent convincing yourself to sit down and do it so like if someone wants to be a writer because it'll make them famous then they're not going to. They're not going to get good at writing because they have to spend part of their energy each day convincing themselves to be better to, to sit down and type, as opposed to the pe- people who are so passionate about it. They'll wake up two hours early and they're then they'll start writing right away. So that's why passion and obsession are are important for when you switch interests. But we all know people who have switched interests many times in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. I've switched interests every five or six years of my life. Maybe that means I'm a dilettante. Or maybe it means I just enjoy getting good at lots of different things. But every single time, 100%, somebody has always told, many people have told me, you can't do this, you're too old. You don't have the education. You don't have the pedigree. You don't have the experience. You don't have the connections. And then they'll say, listen, you can't skip the line. I've done this, this. I work. I worked at Goldman Sachs. I I worked. A, uh, I I got coffee for hedge fund managers at a hedge fund. I built up. I started trading. I spent 20 years. I got a, my client list, and then I was finally able to launch my own hedge fund, and it's still failing. So what makes you think you can do it with zero experience? So there's there's those two things. But what they're really saying is, when someone tells you you can't do something, they're really more they're, they're really saying more about themselves. Yeah. Maybe they can't do it, or maybe they don't want you to change. They like you the way you are. They don't want you suddenly to be amazing at a new area of life that, that they don't understand or that they, or they, they feel threatened by. And the other thing is, people who are already in the industry, maybe they have worked really hard for 20 years, 25 years. I remember when I was doing standup, when I started doing the stand-up comedy, this guy comes up to me and he's like, listen, James, Don't think you can skip the line like you need to do, you know, some open mics. Then you need to uh, hang out at clubs, get to know the bookers. Then you need to do the what's called the check spot and then the MC spot. And then maybe just maybe at the at the lower clubs, you can get some real time and you build up. It'll take he said, I've been doing this for 25 years and I still drive a Verizon truck during the day. And, you know, when I'm retired, from Verizon, another year or two, I'll be able to devote more time to this. And don't think you could skip the line. It takes a good 10 to 20 years to do this. It's
0: desolate to think about that, right? I mean,
1: Yeah, I was in my mid-40s. What am I going to do, be 65 years old? <laughs> and uh, uh, well, by the way, maybe there's nothing wrong with being 65 and deciding you want to change careers too. But at the time, I didn't want to wait 20 years. And uh, so, so I kind of ignored him. And I did what I do. I, a lot of the techniques in the book, Skip the Line, which I've used every single time I've ever switched careers. And not only did I learn the skills I needed, and again, you don't need to be the top 10 in the world. It's good enough to be the top 1% in the world. But also, and a lot of books ignore this, you have to learn how to monetize something. You have to learn how the industry works. It's not good enough to be the best writer on the planet if you don't know how to monetize being a writer, if you don't know how the industry mm-hmm. works. So I find some books talk about learning. Some books talk about how to make money. No books really talk about, you have to do both to be yes. successful. You can't be successful if you know how to make money, but you don't know how to... um you know, you can't be a successful physicist if you don't know physics. Uh, and I,
0: really, I really want to delve into that too, because in, I think it's chapter 19 in your book, you talk about the spoke and the wheel um, that, you know, you take something you're good at, something that you love, which is the wheel. But then also you look into all the ways of monetizing it, which are the spokes.
1: Yeah, that is so important and so valuable. And, I, and look, I... I, I, a couple of years ago, I pitched this as a TV show. It was called I Will Make You a Millionaire. And I would take 10 random people from around the country, totally random, and using the techniques and skip the line, I would essentially, you know, within six to 12 months, they'd either make a million dollars or they would see light at the end of the tunnel. They would see the pathway to a million dollars. And then
0: what happened?
1: Well, everybody liked every I mean, I pitched every network like I had a great agent for it who loved the idea. Every network loved it. But the question is, they would all ask, well, how do you know you're going to make a millionaire? And so I said, well, talk to these five people who I've helped in the past, five out of many. And uh, uh, they said, okay, but how do you know this time? How do you know those weren't just luck? And I'm like, well, you don't know. Anything can happen. But So I think think, uh, TV networks all like the idea. I had multiple meetings with every network. But I think at the end of the day... They didn't want to commit the millions of dollars it would take to see if the idea would even work or not. Superhumanize.
0: And most people are risk-averse, right? We're also biologically hardwired. Our brain does not like risk. So And
1: and and I get that, which is why like one of the first chapters in this book is called The Ten Thousand Experiment Rule. It's how to get better at something without taking on large amounts of risk particularly in the beginning when you're not sure yet and so but but so what i decided to do after this book is out like okay i'll just do this myself so i i found uh, some random people and i've been zoom chatting with them and going over the techniques and and working with them and i'm gonna make these 10 you know hopefully uh millionaires are on the path of that and and i don't mean it in such like a uh, money way like oh a million dollars I want them to be, get good at what they love doing but have been always afraid to try and I want them to learn the industry and I want them to use the techniques in the book to both get good and then figure out how to monetize and put them on a path that will change their lives if, if you if you end up making money at something you love doing it's the best it's the best feeling in the world because Absolutely. it's like you yeah. know one of, the, one of the constituent two of the constituents of A real good sense of well-being is having that sense of mastery over something you love because Mm -hmm. then you really appreciate the nuances of it in ways that others don't. And freedom, having the ability to make a large percentage of your decisions, the ones you want to make as opposed to ones others make for you. And you get freedom by monetizing what you love.
0: Let me ask you one thing I'm really fascinated by this concept so you're now basically mentoring these 10 different people uh, how what is the first of all have you set a certain time frame in which you will mentor them and hopefully bring them to success and second which kind of um, what kind of dreams or what kind of uh, professions and fields are there and how wide-ranging is that
1: yeah so I've, I've just started this because um, I, I came up with this idea. Essentially, the day the book was published, which is about a week or so ago. Um, but I've met with two people so far, one actually earlier today. And I'm figuring it like about a year, maybe less. Okay. And and I get nothing from it. It's not like, oh, you got to give me a piece of everything you guys do. Like, I, I just want to help them. And I want to prove that the I've proved over and over again privately that the techniques in the book. Work like I've helped other people and I've helped myself using this techniques. But now I'm gonna just I'm documenting everything, so I'm putting everything on video. I'm having them document stuff, so this way I can really show that it works. And and that's my spoken wheel. Like then that could be a book or a podcast or a TV show or or whatever. But uh you know like I had um, a, a first meeting with someone today, and he's in. The, and I and he's passionate about the restaurant industry, which of mm-hmm. course is in great upheaval right now yeah. because of the pandemic. The entire industry is changing, so he started telling me all these ideas he had. He's he already has a lot of skills um, on the restaurant side, so that wasn't as much issue. Maybe he needs business skills and entrepreneurial skills. So I see we're gonna have to work on that because um, he's never done that before. Um, but he he taught me a lot about the restaurant industry, and um and my approach is like okay well what are you thinking he's like well one day i'd like to run my own restaurant which is a normal goal and dream Mm -hmm. but i said let's i described the you know he read the book but i described again because we were doing this on zoom i described again the spoke and wheel approach which is that okay the rest the restaurant business the food business is your wheel really the restaurant business because the food business is something else but the restaurant business is is the wheel and owning a restaurant owning your own restaurant is one spoke but mm-hmm. there's all given your ideas there's like 15 other spokes and i outlined them for him um ranging from you know very creative software solutions he was just riffing on the fly to help restaurants to consulting to newsletters to courses mm-hmm. to to um uh, uh, going in and, and and redoing restaurants to fit his creative ideas uh, and but all of these things are connected. If you do one, maybe you can do the other later, uh, or, or it builds you the network. Like if you do a, a high-end newsletter about creative restaurant ideas, For the 21st century, that'll expose you to many other restaurant owners and build your network.
0: But also your brand. If you look at some people, you know, I'm just a first name that pops into my mind is somebody like Wolfgang Puck, who's had such tremendous success, you know, with very, very high end restaurants. Uh, You know, Spago comes to mind uh, here in Beverly Hills, but who basically has restaurants pretty much all over the world now. And from high end restaurants to uh, quick takeout or even, I think, food uh, automats. I mean, he's built such a, huge brand. There's so many different ways. First of all, build your brand and then also expand uh, what you love and bring it to all kinds of different audiences tailored to the specific audience's needs. And a lot of people, you know, they don't, I, I guess, you know, for a lot of people like the gentleman you're describing, when he dreams about a restaurant, that's his big dream. Uh, but then a lot of people maybe don't see that there's even bigger dreams or other dreams around that.
1: Right. Like he had never thought of it in the context. He thought the only choice was owning a restaurant. And there's many. And when I started describing to him this approach, I said, look, I don't know the restaurant industry. Next week when we meet again, why don't you give me more spokes even? And he's like, oh, my God, this has got my brain like on fire because all these things sound so exciting. Um, How do I pick one? And I said, you don't pick one. You pick kind of all of them and see what happens. Wolfgang Puck, though, is a great example this is a guy who, since he was when he was a little kid, he his mother just loved using. She would garden the food that she would cook, so mm-hmm. he was always there helping her pick out of the ground the spices, the whatever I don't know the ingredients for the meals that she would cook, and that's how he learned to cook. And sure, he wanted to have a restaurant. Did he know he was going to have a chain of restaurants? Did he know he was going to be selling frozen foods in every grocery store? Did he know um, he would be selling you know in in the little takeout places, the- take Yeah, and airports. No, these were all, and look, he's even doing a masterclass on cooking. Did he know he would be yeah, yeah, doing yeah. that? So, so you know, there's always there's so many ways to get pleasure from your interests. Like uh, I was talking to one guy the other day who um, he was trading bonds for a living for JP Morgan. He was a finance guy. And but when the pandemic happened, he had a lot of free time. Yeah. And his, he was in his 40s. His real love was sports. Was he going to be a professional athlete? No. The guy's 45 years old, and I don't know if he's in shape or not. And uh, uh, being 40 in general kind of disqualifies you for almost every athlete, professional athletic endeavor. Yeah. But
0: Unless you're Rich Roll. Unless you're Rich Roll. Yeah, no. But, you become an ultra runner.
1: <laughs> right, but Rich Roll, he made a career out of the fact that he was older. It's not yeah. like he's... Yes, he's competing with younger people, but the real fascinating thing with him is that is he is older. That's part of his his thing. But this guy started a newsletter that combined every day, five days a week. He he writes about the intersection between sports and finance because he's got he's twenty years in the financial business. And like for instance, a few weeks ago, he wrote about the Super Bowl. Apparently, the singer for the halftime. Um, did not get paid to do the halftime and in fact used 7 million dollars of his own money to produce the halftime show. Why did he do that? So this guy wrote and broke down the economics of the halftime. What did what did earlier Beyonce do Maroon 5 for previous Super Bowls? What happened with them? And it's fascinating. Like I I'm not well, interested in sports bad. at all, but I yeah. shared it with a bunch of my friends. And so then I had him on my podcast and he said, "Yeah, I've got 27,000 subscribers now. I just started this like 8 months ago." quit my job at J.P. Morgan, and this is what I do.
0: I mean, he found a niche, clearly something that not many other people are doing.
1: Yeah, he went from being passionately interested in sports but having a finance career to essentially now being the number one writer in the on the planet about the intersection between sports and finance.
0: That's awesome. And this and, is also something you emphasize so much. I mean, you know, we have, uh, uh, you know, before coronavirus, after coronavirus um, – You know, tens of millions of people lost their jobs and and a lot of things that we're used to that would just work and just be in our lives, whether it's the jobs or the government functioning, uh, we've really experienced a shift in perspective. And I think many of us have just become profoundly aware of, first of all, life is short. Our mortality, yeah, the potential of it, that's been shoved in our faces in these last 12 months, something we usually like and love to suppress. And so I think um, a lot of people are at the point where they don't just want to survive and feed their families but they want to thrive you know they they want to rebuild and actually follow something that that really resonates deep down inside with them within this massive uncertainty that we call life and that sounds like that's what the guy you're talking about has been has done and has done really successful and so for me what a question that really pops up there though is and this, of course, you tackle also in your book. But so when we find this thing that we really, really love and we get over the don't, you can't do that, that, you know, get told to us from the outside, how do we get good at it quickly? And you're an expert at that. You're really good at getting really good at things.
1: Yeah, like I'll give the example from I'll give a couple of examples, but from stand up comedy, um, I did the techniques in the book. I was horrible when I started, like anybody would be. Uh, except maybe maybe Dave Chappelle was, not I don't know. S- six seven years later, right before the pandemic started, I, I just got back from touring the Netherlands. I've, I've toured all over the United States, all over the world, doing comedy, and you know, sold out everywhere I go. And I do it, and, uh, despite everybody who told me you can't skip the line, and everybody told me you can't do this. And similarly, I remember in in 2002, I. W- to be a professional investor, I wanted to mm-hmm. somehow or other be like a hedge fund manager or something. And I remember one guy told me, Look, you got to work at Goldman Sachs, get an MBA, work for a hedge fund, and it's going to you have to start from the bottom. And I'm like, I, are, I don't want to do that. And within a year or so, I was I had very good returns because of that. I raised a significant amount of money and I started running a hedge fund. And you know, it's possible to do all these things despite what the norm is. Just like my friend who is the is now having the time of his life writing about the intersection between sports mm-hmm. and finance, you know, I was able to start a hedge fund. I was able to do stand-up comedy. I, I I remember I was um for a while I worked at HBO and I was a computer programmer. My title was Junior Analyst Programmer, something like that. And I pitched I said I the web was just starting and I skipped the line and I I didn't ask for my boss's approval, but I went straight to the CEO and I said, just like how HBO does original TV shows, you should do original web shows. And he says, I don't care. Do whatever you want. So I go to my boss and I say, well, the CEO told me to do this, so I got to do it. And uh, I, I did an original web show, which was I did for three or four years and even shot it as a TV pilot for HBO's documentaries de- department. So I was able to skip the line there. And there's also, I'm not saying this to brag, I never, you know, some things I succeeded at, some things I didn't, and I've had a lot of known failures that I've I've written about very publicly, but uh, these techniques, if you can do what you love, and even if you've changed what you love and you need to start from scratch and then make money at it, it's just the best feeling in the world. So I'll describe some of these techniques. Yes. Um, So... So one of them I call the 10,000 experiment rule. And the reason I focus on this one is I was obsessed with the 10,000 hour rule, which is yeah. popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers, which basically says if you spend 10,000 hours of what's called deliberate practice or deliberate learning, which really just means you have a coach and repetition and and feedback and and, uh, on, and you repeat a lot of times for 10,000 hours, you'll be the best in the world or among the best in the world. And this scared the heck out of me like – Every time I change interest, am I going to have to put ten thousand hours into this? I don't have that kind of. Not that I'm trying to take a shortcut, but I don't have that kind of time. And uh, but I still love comedy or investing or chess or writing or whatever or you know entrepreneurship or podcasting whatever it is. Julia Cameron, who's written a lot of books about creativity, I explained to her what do I I asked her what do I do I'm I feel like uh, hampered by this ten thousand hour rule and she didn't even know what it was so I explained it to her and she said oh gosh, you poor baby, like you're in this straitjacket of creativity, and you're putting yourself in, in prison. And so I realized, you know, what I've done every time I've switched mm-hmm. interests is I've experimented. And if you do experiments, you learn enormously fast. Mm-hmm. All the things, you don't, Not only things you don't know, but things other people don't know. So that when you really start to get good at something you also have a unique stance and vision on on your industry and on your field because of all these experiments you're doing superhumanize
0: tell us about some of the experiments i mean you're you're uh, i love this attitude of yours cuz this experimenting is also a sense of Playfulness towards life, you know, life as a game and something that, yeah, you take seriously, but you also don't burden yourself too much. You just approach it in a playful way. Um, So, I, I, and I've just seen that on your um, blog, you put up a post. uh, You registered for being a presidential candidate in 2024, and you said, We all can do it, and we should all do it. It takes you 10 minutes, and it's part of this. Um, yeah just experimenting in your life and so this of course is I, I love I love that that's uh, it, it really um, made me smile big but with regards to some of the endeavors that you've embarked on in your life like what types of experiments did you do go for and uh, specifically and then how did they inform you actually becoming successful in a particular area?
1: yeah so so an experiment involves, What's the nature of an experiment, first of all? It should have, it should be very easy to do. It should be very cheap to do. It should have little downside, uh, and it should have enormous upside. So for instance, with stand-up comedy, I wanted to, um, the very first few months or year or I was doing this, I wanted to get better at dealing with uh, a negative crowd, a crowd that didn't like me, and I wanted to get better at, at, my one liners, the time it takes between the time I start a joke and the time people are laughing. So rather than wait to get on stage and that's a little bit more high stakes when you're on stage and everyone's looking at you, the bookers are looking at you. I went into the New York city subway system and run a subway car. You can't find a more negative audience than <laughs> people going home from work on a subway. And, and then I stood, I, I, I got scared to death. I I, I had a, someone with me videotaping, and I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I, I wasted your time. I'm not. There's no way I'm going to do this." But then I said to her, "Okay, just turn on the camera and let's see what happens." She turned on the camera, and then I just started telling some jokes. Some people didn't give it, didn't care, and some people laughed. And I focused on those people, and and I I was making up material also as I was going along. I didn't have any prepared material, and I, every stop, I moved to a different subway car. Uh, so it was lots of different audiences, lots of different performances, and it was a great experiment because a it showed me that it showed me things I wouldn't have guessed, which is that of course comedy doesn't have to be in a comedy club. It also showed me I can do one-liners and I can get better at them, and it 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 gave me experience on how to win an audience over to my side. Like it gave me some yeah. uh, every car I was able to try different things out. Like what happens if you're What happens if you insult the audience is the first thing. What happens if you pander to the audience? Mm -hmm. What happens if you don't tell a joke, but you, you know, do something else, uh, do voices or whatever. And what's the fastest way to win over an audience? I was able to experiment with 20 different audiences in like a two hour period.
0: And what you did, of course, also is this exposing yourself to complete uncertainty and within short periods of time, you know, going to these different, um, subway cars and, uh, this willingness of yours, you know, what you just described with that experiment, but with many, many other things in your life, is you you always um, seem to have had this willingness to jump right into uncertainty. And I find that fascinating because, you know, biologically speaking, we touched upon this before, our, our brain loathes uncertainty. It puts us into fight or flight mode. And, and I think some people may be genetically predisposed to being able to navigate situations of extreme stress and uncertainty. Um, For example, they have uh, recently discovered that uh, there's the MAOA gene um, and the type of MAOA gene you have determines your reactions to events around you. And they also call this the warrior gene. I don't know if you've heard about that cell. Yeah, I just uh, talked about that with a former uh, Special uh, Forces Operations commander friend of mine. And apparently, a lot of people who go for these types of careers, uh, you know, they're just um, much better suited also genetically for these high-risk, high-stakes, stakes, constantly changing and stressful environments.
1: What's interesting, though, is that so an experiment is designed to basically reduce risk. So mm-hmm. in order to be in front of 20 different audiences, if, if you're a beginning stand-up comedian, it's probably going to take you over a year at the beginning. But I was able to do it in a two-hour period, and... What was my risk really? My And of course I was scared to do it, but why was I scared? There's really no downside. What's gonna happen? Some people aren't gonna laugh. Some people maybe are gonna insult me and I'll be disappointed, but that's that's all the downside. And the upside is I might learn something. I might learn to be a better comedian. I might learn a, 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 you know, to do better one-liners. I'll learn more about audiences. I'll learn how to win over audiences. But the real upside, too, I realized, hey, you know, maybe I could do a late night talk show on the subway. I started getting creative with this because I enjoyed it so much, ultimately. And so I shot it as a late night TV show also. I had a, a friend of mine who had written a book. I had him on as a guest. I had somebody who was playing drums on garbage cans as a musical guest. And I filmed it almost like a spoof of a talk show. And I pitched it to an agent and... He rejected it. He said, nah, and that's fine. But that that was an extension of the experiment. My upside was huge, but my downside is what? I have a story to tell, and I learned something. That was like the worst case scenario. I spent zero dollars, and I learned something valuable, and I got better at skills. And just in case, I had enormous upside as well. And so if you do enough experiments, sometimes the upside kicks in, and it's amazing, the upside, like what could happen. Superhumanize.
0: Feel free to experiment. Most of us are not, uh, you know, we're not raised to do that. You just mentioned uh, rejection, getting rejected from the agent. And I mean, rejection is a big deal for most of us. You know, it stops us in our mental and physical tracks and it can completely blow our determination to smithereens. So how do you deal with it? How do you actually manage not internalizing rejection?
1: I I used to heavily internalize it like it used to devastate me and yeah. the reason why it would devastate me and the reason why it devastates i think a lot of people is i think we all start off with a scarcity complex meaning people mm-hmm. since we're kids our parents tell us our teachers tell us, our professors tell us look don't think you're special you know you're not going to be um you know bill gates just do your you know have a good job do it blah blah, blah. or or you know people in the industry tell you you can't do this, like I said earlier. So we're always thinking we have one shot, like the Eminem song, you know, you got one shot. And <laughs> that that's actually, we don't have one shot. We have many shots. We have many ways to, to, to reach our goals. And to think there's only one chance and that's it is a scarcity complex. Instead, you should think in terms of abundance. Like if I'm a creative person, I'm not just gonna have one idea. I'm gonna have many ideas in many industries. Yeah. And so, um, so even if someone steals an idea of mine, no problem. That's validation that I'm a good idea machine and I'm going to keep having ideas and I'll just keep on sharing my ideas and good things will happen and bad things will happen and life's going to be interesting and, and fun. Yeah. And, you know, you know, one time I did want to do, uh, do an experiment on writing and now I've been writing since 1990. I've been writing professionally since 2002. So, it's not like, but you always, you know, anything that you're passionate about and that's and worth learning, it's that case where the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn. And so writing, I always want to improve. And so I, I had an idea for an article, but I didn't want to just write it as an article. I thought that would be boring. I wanted to experiment with formats, like, you know, writing, people don't think about it, but when you write an article, there's many formats you can experiment with, like uh, if you write an article or a, or a short story or even a novel in the form of two people writing letters to each other back and forth, that's called the epistolary form. If you write a person where you refer to yourself as you, that's you're writing it in the second person or you can write it in the third person or, or the first person from different points of view. So there's lots of formats for writing. So I had an idea where... Uh, I was inspired by uh, two young men. One was the prime minister of Denmark and the other was uh, Donald Trump. And Donald Trump tweeted this odd tweet. Like he said, I wanna buy Greenland. And the prime minister of Denmark said it's not for sale. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, first off, you can buy Greenland? Like I didn't even know you could buy a country. Second off, what's the prime minister of Denmark got to do with this? Like. I thought Greenland was its own place. Does does Denmark own Greenland? And why would Donald Trump focus on Greenland? Like, And I kind of thought there was a joke there somehow that it would be kind of funny if Puerto Rico has been clamoring for to be the 51st state for so long, and then suddenly Greenland comes along and becomes the 51st state. I thought that would be like a weird thing. But I did my research, and I realized, oh, I see what's going on here, and I'm connecting all the dots. So I wanted to write an article about this, but it seemed like a boring it seemed boring to just write like an article. So, what I did was, I still wrote what I wanted to write, but I put it in the form of a Kickstarter project. Was, I formatted it exactly like a Kickstarter project where there's, uh, if you donate $1,000, I'll give you 10,000 acres of land. If you don't, or I'll, I'll get, uh, donate $10,000, donate more, and I'll give you a holiday after your name. I'll make you a Duke. I'll make you an Earl. And then I put it on Kickstarter that I wanted to raise a hundred million dollars myself to buy Greenland. Here's why. So suddenly I took this article and I converted it into a, a, a Kickstarter project, and I started raising money. Like people were donating. It started getting shared around, and people started donating. My it was up to like two thousand dollars within an hour, and Kickstarter shut it shut it down because they didn't want to be responsible for the credit card fees when I ultimately failed in my in raising a hundred million, but. It was an interesting way to see how my writing skill transported into a completely different format that I wasn't familiar with, could still, you know, persuade people and entertain people and be informative. And by the way, I had never even looked at the website Kickstarter before. So it was was an experiment to learn how to do a Kickstarter project.
0: Another experiment and also something, you know, this, uh, this really stands out to me when I look at the entire body of your work is that you have a passion for telling stories and also listening to other people's stories, whether you write your own stories and pour them into these different um, containers, you know, it doesn't always have to be a blog, like what you just shared with Kickstarter. And also as a podcast, we're listening to other people's stories. Um, And you, in your are Experience and your perception, what is the most powerful aspect of storytelling? What makes a compelling story?
1: Well, two things. One is, don't forget, like, you know, so let's say humans, you know, our, our species has been around for about two million years, mm-hmm. specifically our subspecies, whatever you want to call it, Homo sapiens sapiens is the technical name. It's been around for a good quarter of a million years. And, uh, We only have had reading and writing for, let's say, the past, I don't know, a couple thousand years out of 250,000 years out of potentially 2 million years. So how do we transmit important information to people? And and we're biologically – we evolved. You could only survive if you're the previous generation tells you, look, these animals are dangerous. These foods are poison. But these foods are good. But here's how you prepare them. Like, you know, avoid this tribe. But these tribes are good you could only survive if you're able to transmit information so and from from the older wiser people in the tribe and so we're, we've evolved to be storytellers and story listeners if you if you read a textbook on physics and it's just listing formulas you're not going to be you're not going to learn anything you, you you even einstein he doesn't i i still don't even really know what the theory of relativity is but i do know that einstein was thinking to himself Okay, there was. What happens if there's a man on a spaceship flying the speed of light, and there's another person on Earth looking at this person? How do they perceive each other? Never. And from that, he was able to construct the mathematics behind the theory of relativity. It was a theory. It was experimented on later and proved to be true. But uh, we we only learned how to transmit information through stories. We we don't know really any other way to transmit information. It's all through stories. Uh, I, I remember stories from when I was six years old, but I can't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday.
0: Absolutely. Humankind is powered, is fueled by stories. It's in our DNA.
1: Yeah. And, and Joseph Campbell's done some great work on the arc of the hero, which is like the yeah. format of 99% of stories, which is, you know, and I encourage everyone to even just Wikipedia, the arc of hero, you don't have to read Joseph Campbell's works, but um, you know, it starts off with a reluctant hero uh, a call to action, maybe that the reluctant hero suddenly has to do something heroic that he didn't want to do. Uh, uh, along the way, he meets friends and allies, and and a mentor, and he meets greater and greater enemies, and has greater and greater problems, and eventually he solves the biggest problem of all and comes back to share the tale. And think about Star Wars as like a classic yeah. example. And uh, uh, or the Bible, classic example, or Harry Potter, classic example, and uh, uh, in every romance in, on the planet, cl- classic example. And so, always think in terms of stories. When even if you're writing a nonfiction article mm-hmm. uh, about a dry topic like fly fishing or Greenland, always tell a story. And 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 that's really important too. Experimenting in story formats, like a friend of mine, Steve Pressfield wrote a book, uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which became yeah. a, a great movie. I think it won an Oscar. Uh, Matt Damon, Will Smith were in it. And it's about a 1920s uh, uh, golf tournament and in 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 Georgia. Okay, I can't think of a more boring topic for me, but like I'm not interested in any of those things. But it's a great book. I highly encourage people to read it. And then I learned later, and it's obvious in retrospect, he took beat for beat every single component of the bhavaga gita which is a story written in india yep. uh, at least 2500 years ago maybe longer and beat for beat he it's like he met ma- he mapped it exactly each scene
0: fascinating
1: yeah and he even wrote a book about that process of doing that called the authentic swing but uh uh that's how i learned about it and but he shows the mapping and it's it's almost uncanny. It's like almost like plagiarizing, but it's not, of course, because he's writing about a golf tournament. And,
0: and, and plus he's using a format that our brains, you know, in in, in case of the Bhagavad Gita in, uh, or, you know, it, it has been hardwired or the hero's journey, Campbell's hero's journey, you know, the way to tell a story in, in that format. Our brains are Receptive for that, you know, it's it's the way they're not only used in our lifetime to stories being told like that, but this is how our ancestors and those formats have shared stories. So it resonates,
1: right? Like he knew it would work because mm. essentially that's. I mean, the arc of the hero is, of course, the overriding format, but then there's ways to break it down even further. The Bhagavad Gita being one version of this format, and. He knew that the Bhagavad Gita was a story that essentially has been focus grouped by over a billion people for 2,500 years, right. and they love it. And they, it's like a, it's like one of the greatest stories of all time. And uh, uh, so he just, he knew if he just took it beat by beat, he could apply it to anything. And it, a great story. So I decided to do an experiment. So I took. Um, I've done it. I did it a couple of times. I was writing a, a blog for. Uh, I was writing articles for a blog called TechCrunch, which was about entrepreneurship, and everybody would write these dry articles about Apple or Elon Musk or whatever. And uh, I, I decided I'm gonna write. Um, there, there, there's one line. So, so, so the study of yoga, for instance, is based on this. I think it's about a hundred. and Fifty-line poem called the Yoga Sutras. I took this one line, which is "What are the nine? Um, what are the nine things that will prevent someone from achieving enlightenment?" And they give it, it gives nine reasons. And I took and so I wrote an article. What What are nine ways people will fail to be a successful entrepreneur? I took the exact nine items, and put stories for each one that have happened to me, and it became my most popular article ever on, on TechCrunch, because okay. again, I knew that that line had been focus group since at least 300 BC. Uh,
0: that is such intriguing uh, input and advice. Um, I Yeah, I, I will keep that in mind for my personal writing. And this is also something I wanted to ask you, because look, you've published, I think it's 20 books by now. And I remember in your book, Choose Yourself, you mentioned an interview with uh, Stephen King. And he, for example, said that he doesn't take any time of writing because when he does, he loses the momentum and it becomes much, much harder to start. So everyone has their own ways of writing. Do you have a personal system of writing? Because obviously you've been very prolific.
1: Yeah, I I read every morning and I read I read some nonfiction to learn something new, but most importantly I read high quality fiction because hmm. fiction writers are the best at the skill of writing, Not to say nonfiction writers are bad at writing, but a nonfiction um psychologist writing about psychology, they spent their lives studying what they're writing about in psychology, whereas a writer spends his or her life studying writing. So writers tend to be, if I want my mirror, my mirror neurons to kick in, ultimately I've got to read like high quality writing. so I'll read every morning and then I'll start writing whatever comes to my mind and I do this I do this every day or I try to do this every day. Uh, I don't say I do it every day because you know some days it's harder than others but um, you also have to decide like what kind of writer do you want to be but it's good to just understand. I like to understand every nuance of whatever area I'm interested in. So even if I wanted to be a romance novelist, it's good to know what's the format of a horror novel. What's the format of a literary novel? What's the format of a autobiography or a nonfiction? So for instance, one time I wrote a book that was fiction, um, that was an autobiography, but it was like a fake autobiography. But in order to do that, I had to know and understand deeply the format of an autobiography. And, uh, Uh, You know, so it's interesting. And, you know, the thing about the Stephen King story is he had a bicycle accident and he after just a few weeks in bed, he he needed physical therapy to walk again because that's how fast the leg muscles atrophy. Well, people don't realize creativity is also a muscle. It's like a mental muscle. And if you're not creative every day, you'll. your your creative muscle will atrophy. So I always make it a practice to write down 10 ideas a day. They could be bad ideas, good ideas. I'm gonna throw out the ideas anyway. I'm just exercising that creativity muscle. Superhumanize.
0: I love that a lot of people think, and a lot of the guests I uh, talk on the podcast with, you know, we talk a lot about optimizing the body and the brain in a sense, uh, but to also optimize your creativity.
1: What's interesting is I was really depressed in 2002 because I had gotten completely broke after selling a business and then blowing it all up. And uh, I was super depressed. I couldn't get out of it. And I started this practice. I would—I got a bunch of waiter's pads. I started writing 10 ideas a day. And it's like within a few weeks, it's like my neurons were, were lighting up in my brain and connections were being made. And I was feeling like a spark of happiness again, even though I was still broke. I was mm-hmm. still scared to death how I was going to feed my family. But I started having ideas and then I started sharing the ideas with people and people would reach back and say, Hey, you should do this. I'll help you do this. And opportunities started to happen. Even this past year, uh, something happened. I had an idea for somebody else. I said, I often do this. So like I'll have an idea. I had an idea for a guy who's a well-known radio host and I sent him a list of, I said, here's a book you should write. And here's a 10 chapter outline and, and then I even kind of fleshed out the, the chapters a little more and he's like, Oh my God, this is great. Can you write this book with me? And I said, no, 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 this is really just for you as I want you to do it. I think you should do it. And we had a lot of back and forth about it. And ultimately we ended up doing it together. And now a year, literally almost, it's about nine months to the day. And, uh, in eight days, the, the audiobook of this. It became an audiobook. The audiobook's coming out.
0: What you said about, you know, just writing down, out these 10 ideas, no matter what, and that that your neurons just, uh, you know, you became happier. And there's something biological to it. You know, the, the, the neurons that fire together, wire together, you're actually strengthening these pathways in your brain and reacting them, reactivating them and actually strengthening them.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. And then and then I have a, a chapter on this in Skip the Line. There's different things you can do. So I, I call this chapter Idea Calculus, which is, okay, well, you could have I, idea sex with ideas. So you could take an idea, well, here, a perfect example is what I said earlier. The, uh, the guy took sports and finance, combined them, and became the number one in the world at the intersection. Or... Um, I remember, I thought this was a, such a no-brainer. The Fugees in 1996 uh, uh, took the song Stayin' Alive, which was the most popular disco song ever, and they took their signature Fugees style, combined them, made the song We Are Staying Alive. Of course, it's the most obvious Billboard number one hit ever. That that's going to be a hit. So idea sex works really well. But then there's also uh, I describe what I call idea multiplication, idea exponentials, idea division, idea subtraction. There's lots of ways to almost do th- these manipulations and ideas to come up with new ideas, and it's a great way to come up with to come up with ideas and 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 to use older ideas and different topics but applying these manipulations like oh i'm going to take the yoga sutras or or buddha's four noble truths or the bhagavad gita and i'm going to apply it to golf tournaments and then that's an an example or or let's say you know a very interesting example is is amazon amazon was an online bookstore well okay let's let's multiply that idea let's um uh, now make an online electronics store, an online clothing store, an online food store, which is what Bezos did. Then now uh, let's take let's take that to the let's take that to an exponential. Like let, let's 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 square that, and oh, we'll take the whole infrastructure we have of setting up stores and open it up to anybody. So that created the Amazon sellers business, so anybody can set up their own stores on Amazon. And then let's take an exponential of that, which is oh, we have this huge infrastructure to keep track of data and storage and logistics, let's create Amazon Web Services. And that's their most profitable division now. So these, you know, manipulations on ideas are very powerful. And
0: and especially if you like you, uh, I like the way you put it, if you had focus groups on, um, you know, with regards to storytelling on things that already have worked and literally billions of people, or if you look at Amazon for their different services, Literally, having millions of people and then just expanding it and taking it to to another level and uh, James, you know there's something else uh, since uh, um I have you here, and I just recently started this journey, and I have a mastermind here. I wanna pick your brain like I pick raisins out of a pound cake. You have this super successful uh, top ten rated podcast with millions of listeners, and I think you've had over sixty million downloads you've uh, interviewed. Uh, leaders and visionaries such as Tony Robbins, Peter Thiel, Mark Cuban's, many many others, and so I would like to know from you what are what is the biggest, most uh, profound thing you have learned since you started your podcast.
1: Well, you know the interesting thing about profound is that it's ultimately very simple and and but it's nuanced, and so really the most important thing is is for all of these people is there 100% of the people i've interviewed are insanely curious that that's why they get so much knowledge about what they about what they love is that they're very very curious and they understand instinctively how to learn and they also learn this this the skills of learning and they learn what do you do once you learn something well you need to learn how to persuade people of your vision you need to learn how to monetize things so I learned a lot of these techniques that I write about from from my guests. The other thing is, is that you really have to go where nobody else is. Like you can't just like, I, I, for instance, let's take comedy. If I go to the average comedy show, most comedians are average and they all say, oh, man, I, here's what I can't stand about Tinder. And everybody's got like dating jokes, Tinder jokes, but very few people have like a unique perspective on things. And the same thing with writing. Like My view is I, like I don't hit publish on something I write unless I'm afraid of what people will think of me. Mm. and Because then I know it hasn't been written before. I know I'm saying something unique. I know it's going to be interesting for people to read because they're like, oh, I can't believe he's saying this. And not like I'm trying to be controversial. I just go through my stories and things like that and figure, okay, I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I write this true story that happened to me and in the lessons I learned from it. And uh, always kind of going where people are afraid to go while managing the risk. Yeah, I don't take big risks, but while managing the risks, this is very valuable. And this is valuable whether you're an investor, whether you're a comedian, whether you're a writer, whether you're a chess player, uh, you know, whatever. And- or a,
0: pod- or a podcaster.
1: Or a podcaster. Like, you know, there's certainly like, I, I, I almost, I should definitely take more chances with my podcast, although this year I've, I feel like I've been doing that a little bit. And, uh, you know, even even like right now, so after this, uh, you know, around November or December, I decided, so when, when I was a kid, I was a, a high-ranking, like, chess master, and I was very good at what I did. But if you don't do something for 30 years... You lose the skills, just like any. if I don't play, if you're, if you're a golf player or a tennis player and you don't play tennis for 30 years, you'll be like how you were when you were a beginner, even if you had been a pro before. So I was very bad and disappointed in how I played chess now, given how I was so, so- strong at it earlier. So I decided I'm very disciplined. I'm going to use the, the 23 or so techniques in my book to get back to my peak at chess and even better than I ever was before. And uh, it's like three months later. I would definitely say I'm back to where the level I was at before. Uh, and now we'll see if I if I can take the next step, which is to be better than I ever was before. But then along the way, you learn different things. Like, oh my gosh, as opposed to when I was a kid, people are monetizing chess. Like there are ch- chess streamers who are even worse than me who are making it. There's 60 million people on chess.com watching chess streaming. People are making a ton of money. And, you know, I have these podcast skills that are good for interact and I have these comedian skills, which are good for interacting with an audience. And I have these chess skills. Maybe, you know, I can start streaming and see what happens. So that's an experiment.
0: that's, That's a great experiment. I mean, some of these streamers make crazy, crazy money.
1: Yeah, even the chess streamers are making a ton of money. And like I said, some of them are good. Some of them are amazing, like the mm-hmm. world champion streams, but some of them are not as good. Like you don't have to be, that's why you don't have to be the best in the world. Being just in the top 1% or top 2% is enough. You need to know the basic skills, but and then you need to be authentic and honest about who you are and where you stand. But if you have something unique you bring to the table, you can monetize it. Superhumanize
0: what you do, whatever you do is informed by so many different areas. You go into streaming, you bring your passion and your knowledge and your talent for chess. You also bring your passion and talent and experience as a podcaster. It gives you a completely different start than somebody who may not have that experience. This is also why I always encourage people to you know be curious about all kinds of things in life and immerse yourself in all kinds of things even if it has nothing to do with the rest of your life because you never know how it's going to link up and actually give you an edge at some point you know that you wouldn't have had if you didn't just follow your curiosity and and your and your passion there's one more thing i want to ask you with regards to podcasting and that is Uh, especially when you get the types of um, personalities that, of course, are on a lot of the times, whether it's interviews for, you know, classic media or podcast or whatnot. And of course, all of them have a certain message to convey. They have a certain life's work that they want to talk about. But how do you get them out of the realm of their usual narratives?
1: That's a really great question, because everybody comes on. They've said it all before, and... And how do I get them out of that narrative so that if someone listening to this doesn't just turn off and say, "Oh, yeah, I heard that on when he said it on Joe Rogan's show or Tim Ferriss's show or whatever or or your show or you know, whatever show. and And a lot of times, I just try to, well, it's important to really listen. and it's important to ask questions as they come up. And sometimes I get criticized. I had to get better at this. i did, I got criticized for interrupting too much because if I got curious, I know I'm never gonna have a chance to ask, I don't know, Richard Branson this question again, so I better ask it now, so I have to interrupt him. But I got a little better at that. And um uh but really the thing is, is like you, you bond with them. You don't necessarily stick to the subject that they that that you feel obligated to talk about. Like if they have a new book out, you have to talk about that book a little bit, but you you let it segue into other things, and you and you just have a conversation. And I think this is why Joe Rogan is so great, is that he ends up just having this really fascinating conversation with his guests, and um, and it feels like a conversation. I have learned a lot by watching other great podcasters, and I think Joe is is among the best, and there are a few others, and whether or not you agree with something like i could listen to anybody and learn from them uh like i i listen to how howard stern does interviews how joe rogan does interviews how uh, you know all that larry king does interviews they all have different styles i don't necessarily agree with those styles but but you learn from that you 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 need you need virtual mentors so there's one technique in the book uh called plus minus equals a plus is a mentor either real or virtual so i can say howard stern is my virtual mentor on interviewing as is joe rogan as is larry king then you need equals so other podcasters like you and me are do podcasts and we're rising up and we exchange ideas and and you know you learn from from other people rising up with you and then you have a minus so or or more and this is actually the most valuable you teach what you know because uh you can't you don't truly understand something unless you can explain it simply so for instance when i decided okay i'm gonna get better than i ever was at chess instantly got myself a plus someone who much better than me to take lessons from uh haven't had lessons in 23 years uh i i have equals so i i play every day and i have several minuses people i give lessons to and it's amazing like how someone asked me the other day, like how how do you learn from, from that? Just teaching like you, you already know the basics. How do you learn from teaching it again? And it cements the basics so deeply in me and forces me to think in new ways about them to explain them that I, when I'm playing in a game, I really am much better at the basics because A, I know I'm gonna have to explain myself if I don't do the basics that my, the people I give lessons to will be like, well, why didn't you do what you tell us to do? And I also when I'm preparing lessons i i get i I dive deeply into the nuances of these basics. like why is it important to do this? And why is this kind of rule of thumb necessary? And when do you break this rule? And you just learn so much by by teaching?
0: That's outstanding input because yeah. it's on you you know, you're a, what you just said at the same time, you are a teacher, you're a student, and you're also a player,
1: yeah. and and, like, You know, the person who told me this and I'm all these techniques I learned from others. It's not like I made up uh, anything, but it's like a combination of the best things I've learned while learning. But Frank Shamrock was the 10 time world champion of mixed martial arts. So as the name implies, he had to learn every martial art and he had to learn them pretty quickly. So he's the one who said, "Okay, I learned I got a new martial art to learn. I never I don't know anything about it. Plus, minus, equal. That's how he would learn very quickly. And he's became the world champion of mixed martial arts as a result. And I find that most of my guests have had some version of the plus, minus, equals. So for comedy, for instance, I've had a lot of pluses. I've known a lot of great comedians because I have them on my podcast. I have a lot of equals because I just performing in clubs, you meet people who are rising up with you. And minus, I've written a lot about comedy now and learned through that way. Same thing with investing. I had a lot of pluses. I, I read the biographies of every great investor. I knew some great investors. I had a lot of equals, which were people like me trying to be professional investors. And minus, I've written books about investing and I've taught classes. I used to be a spokesperson for Fidelity. I would speak to investors all the time. And uh, I, you know, everything I've done is a plus, a plus minus equals. Love
0: it. And another, another thing
1: that's important too is the concept of micro skills, which I don't yeah. think a lot of people realize, which is that... Like take something like business. There's no such skill as business, but there that's like a basket of skills. And, though, and those skills are completely mutually exclusive from each other. So negotiating, selling, uh, coming up with ideas, executing ideas, valuing a company, raising money, uh, marketing, leadership, which is different from management, uh, you know, persuasion. All these are uh, micro skills that you need to learn if you wanna be better at business. Comedy, it's like crowd work, stage work, mic work, one-liners, storytelling, um, likability, uh, uh, impressions, voices, uh, act-outs, absurdity. Uh, there's all these micro skills in comedy. And, and someone gave me a good idea, actually, the other day, which is to make a little workbook uh, which takes every major skill and divides it into the micro skills that people need to learn. Because I, I think people aren't... O- I even notice in comedy, like I was, people don't, aren't aware... They think humor is the only skill, but there's all these micro skills.
0: All these building blocks. And once you get your head around one of the building blocks, the other ones become easier too. And you're able to build this edifice, you know, this construct of whatever you want to do. Plus, I think it also makes it easier to, I love the idea of micro skills and breaking it down into these micro skills because it it allows your brain to wrap around something that might seem like too big of a goal, and you don't even know how to get started, but in that way you just take it, um, you know, brick by brick, micro skill by micro skill.
1: You put the nail on the head with with this entire book really, is that putting names to these techniques helped me a lot, so I realized, oh, I don't have to just haphazardly try to learn quickly something, I'm gonna do this. Okay, so like when I started getting back into chess, Okay, plus, minus, equal. Boom, done. Uh, What are the micro skills? Okay, let's study the openings. Let's study the end games. Let's study tactics. Uh, uh, You know, um, experiments. Okay, I'm going to try this crazy opening that nobody else plays. I'll try it out on chess.com, see what happens. If I win more games than I lose or what problems I have. So all these things I'm able to put a name to. And labeling is very important, even in, um, you know, not only labeling the micro skills, but let's say you're learning persuasion or mm-hmm. so imagine you're in a debate uh uh so like i was on a debate uh, a few months ago like in october about whether or not one should vote and right. I'm, of the, I'm of the view if you don't believe in a two-party system you you probably shouldn't vote for the lesser of two evils it's the lesser of two evils is still evil and i'm not gonna it's not about politics i don't care like you know, my, my entire family voted except me. I didn't care. It's not like I think people shouldn't vote, but voting people say, but, but I noticed people, whenever I would bring this up, people say, well, people died for your right to vote. Well, the right to vote is different from an obligation. So yes, I'm, I'm using my right to vote by not voting. Um, the other thing people say though is, well, you know, if you don't vote in this election, you're a racist. So people have said that to me and I'm like, okay, listen, I'm happy to debate with you about racism, actually writing a book right now with Charlemagne the God, a, a prominent radio host about racism. And uh, but so I'm happy to debate with you about racism, but are we debating about voting and whether one should vote or not, or are we debating racism? So labeling what people do mid-argument, because a typical technique for people is to change the subject. If you're arguing mm-hmm. with your spouse, think of how many times your spouse changes the subject to keep the argument going. And so labeling what people are doing um, throughout a debate or an argument or whatever is an important persuasion technique.
0: Calling it by the name, right?
1: Yeah. Or, or, or or otherwise you get sucked into their narrative and suddenly they control the frame. And you want to make sure that when you're in a persuasion, such high stakes persuasion situation, that you're at least aware of who's controlling the frame or you're controlling the frame. So it's gotta be, you gotta be aware
0: but always be very aware. Something I'm just uh, curious about as a side note is so, and because you brought it up. So why did you sa- decide not to vote the last election?
1: Well, you know, I do a podcast, as, you, as do you, and I've had on Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians. I had the presidential and vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party on. I'm not a Libertarian, but I was very curious. Mm. Why do you think a third party could run? What's a libertarian? I don't know. Aren't they crazy? Blah blah blah. So I had questions. I had on Andrew Yang, who I yeah. just I love his creativity and the way he um, makes his audience enthusiastic. I've had on Republicans uh, over the years. I had on like Ron Paul, who was a Republican, and I've had on other you know I've had on other Republicans so so I have on and and I know when when you when you take any action whether it's a, a voting decision or a purchasing decision when you take any action where you have skin in the game you're gonna get biased towards your decision so if I made a vote uh, I I know I can't help it Everybody, nobody can help it. I would be cognitively biased towards what I voted on and I want it to be as neutral as possible. So that I could interview people and really, I don't feel I, I feel media has gotten too polarized. I want to be a neutral source of information so people can make decisions. 75 million people, give or take, voted one way, 75 million people voted the other way. So clearly, it's not a hundred percent either way. And it's worth, you know, being neutral in some cases to share information that you think is important. and and historically journalists wouldn't vote or po- you know now it's called podcast. I don't consider myself a journalist, but podcasting is like a relative of of journalism. Historically, journalists wouldn't vote because they wanted to be neutral. People who work for the government historically wouldn't vote because they wanted to be neutral. Uh, you know, people who work in the White House never they're not allowed to vote. And uh, I wanted the same thing to be held true for me. The other thing is I don't believe in a two- party system. I think, to having a binary choice actually makes less opportunity for coalitions and for people, for teams, for, for groups of minorities to work things out together as a whole to solve a, a larger problem because it's either one or the other when it's binary and, uh, the, and then the majority wins. Superhumanize.
0: I understand your um, train of thought, your reasoning behind why you didn't vote and, and the work that you do. I can logically completely comprehend it. And, you know, for me, as a European-born, German-born person, it's it's very, very interesting to witness, of course, the uh, two-party system here in the U.S. It's just completely opposite to what we're used to in Europe, where you have all, of course, you have the big parties, you know, the 600-pound gorillas, so to speak, uh, but you have a lot of small parties, too.
1: You know, even the Pew Institute here, and this was discussed on a podcast I did yesterday, uh, research has shown there's really kind of nine different distinct political belief systems in the U S but they're all in two parties and you know, if you're, you're shamed if you're not in one of these two parties, by the way, yeah. I love Andrew Yang thought he was great, but I'm still, I, it's more important to me to, to be neutral and, and share information and help people make decisions rather than try to force my own opinion Done, everybody because another thing I strongly believe in is that I don't really know most things and and politics is very hard and the president is a popularity contest I would vote for like mayor or something like that because I think local politics affect your life much more than presidential unless you're being sent to war or you're being deported because of immigration it's local politics or everything
0: and local politics for many people are not as sexy and I think it's very very important that to be involved in local politics and what you just said uh, you know that's also an interesting observation I have as a non-american born person but you know you're you just said that you're shamed if you're not part of one of the two parties and you know I have experience with family and friends who have lifelong been either democrat or either republican and um, you know, it's it's not even about uh, the people that are running or certain policies. It's literally this this tribal loyalty. You know, like once a Republican, always a Republican. Once a Democrat, always a Democrat. And I find it very interesting to talk to the friends and family that I have that actually have switched, you know, back and forth between in in the years. Because to them, it's 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 not just about the colors.
1: Yeah. I mean there's no there's no philosophy called democrat and there's no philosophy called republican. There are philosophies socialism, libertarianism, all, all sorts of isms. But like Democrats, particularly Southern Democrats in the US, they were kind of known as the most racist group of politicians. They 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 were, you know, all the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, they were all Democrat for decades and then they more recently switched to Republican, but they were, they were against all civil rights legislation, and it, Republicans, for a time, was the most liberal. Like like Andrew Yang, Democrat, liberal Democrat, he had this concept, universal basic income, great idea. I support the idea. You know who came up with that idea, or, or one of the original politicians to discuss it was Richard Nixon, a Republican. I so, have no
0: idea. Yeah. yeah,
1: most people don't know. So yeah. uh, that's why figure out what your what your beliefs are, don't figure out, you know, they, they just all lie to you, all the politicians, just to get your vote. They have I once I once as an experiment, I once ran for Congress. And what I learned pretty quickly is nobody will even consider nobody big in politics will even consider endorsing you unless you've confirmed that your opinions match your constituents by you hire an expensive pollster you give them $20,000 they poll your constituents and then you have to talk about the issues that they are interested in and you have to agree with them otherwise you won't get endorsed so uh and if you don't get endorsed by anybody you can't run you're not going to win so this It's
0: a big game.
1: It's a big game and people don't realize that like that's the other thing experiments teach you is that for relatively I mean I think I spent zero money on that and yet I got deep in enough that Significant candidates were thinking of endorsing me, and I learned at the very top levels what I needed to do, and it was, you know, it seemed to me like it underlined the basic problems with the political system.
0: I love all these things that you've uh, thrown yourself into, and uh, something else, I have a couple questions, just because, you know, the times we're living in, and I know it's a big part of your world um you know, and everybody is talking about the new normal, the new normal, and what will it actually look like? what will happen um what do you think you know with regards to twenty twenty one and beyond in the near term future, uh what do you think will be happening the trends that you see particularly with regards to uh, to business you know are there any major trends um uh, where are you putting your money into right now with regards to investments?
1: yeah, interesting, so. I think first off, it's important to say that nobody really knows. We can all guess, and you know, it's really hard to know. But you can observe. You can at least observe what's happening. Like, okay, what percentage of rep restaurants are going out of business? What percentage of small businesses? What percentage of people who live in areas that have rent moratorium or eviction moratoriums uh, have? Not, what percentage of people have not paid rent? And you could kind of extrapolate from that a little bit. But one thing we see is is that remote work was obviously important during the pandemic and the lockdowns, did it work? Did, did, were comp- did companies make more or less money? And the answer is it actually it turns out, according to research, it's not according to me, um, companies were in fact more productive, meaning they made more money per unit of labor. Um, did people enjoy it? So some people said uh, they got Zoom fatigue and were looking forward to going back to work. Others people said they love remote work. Turns out that slightly more than fifty percent of the country loved remote work. Um, and other issues, would there be, you know, companies are worried about liabilities. If people come back to work and they get the virus, who's liable? So, oh, but but there's gonna be a vaccine. Well, it turns out the vaccine's only x percent, you know, maybe ninety percent, maybe eighty percent, maybe seventy percent, it's only a certain percentage that it works. So you're still gonna get the virus and there was it'll just be less. And with, it's unclear with all these new mutations, which mutations the vi- the vax- different vaccines will apply for and, and, and which won't. So remote work, I mean, even right now, the, the Time Life building, which is a classic midtown New York City building, is allowed to have up to 50% capacity, but at this moment has only 5% co- uh, people in it. So people aren't going back to work so fast. Maybe they will a year from now, two years from now, but they're not tomorrow or six months from now or whatever so remote work is is going to change the landscape and 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 there's a reason why this time things are different is that this time bandwidth is different so Mm -hmm. well during the financial crisis bandwidth was 120th what it is now now we have the bandwidth to, to have zoom calls and zoom meetings and and then we could save time and money on commute and companies save money on office space and and so on so uh, you know so that's one trend which can be looked at and, and pointed to and so with remote as a trend I'm interested in things that benefit from more and more remote so I invest in maybe alternatives to zoom zoom is great we're on zoom right now yeah. but you know which
0: alternatives so, are you looking at there
1: well okay so right now you and I have been talking for an hour or so and Sometimes I'm sure my screen freezes and sometimes your screen freezes. That's the problem with Zoom and the audio quality is is not very high quality. In fact, Zoom video and audio quality is so low that if you post a video from Zoom on YouTube, the YouTube algorithm will automatically keep it down. You won't get a lot of views because the quality is very low. And so, you know, I talked, I had some ideas about how to fix these problems talk to a programmer and about to launch what I think is a good solution for podcasters that to replace Zoom. There's some competitors out there. And one thing that I've been thinking about in terms of both business and competition and games and sports and writing is what I call the rule of two. It's not enough. I can't just make a better Zoom. I have to have two things going for me because people, the average person can't tell that Zoom quality might not be as good as some other things quality so you have to have two things going for you it's like there's plenty of examples where the better product failed to a worse product because the worst product might have had two things going for it and um Mm -hmm. so maybe i have a better video and audio quality but also um uh you know i'll just make this up but like it also transcribes a book out of every podcast or whatever you hit make the book button and it makes a book for you and now it's like people will try this out but um, or maybe some kind of weird social media features that aren't anywhere else, like a clubhouse meets podcasts.
0: Yeah. Or and, some really cool filters. People love that stuff.
1: Yeah. I was thinking of that, too. Like particularly like if you're doing office meetings, you kind of want to filter to look better. And uh, uh, so. So, yeah, that's that. That's certainly on my feature list. Can, can and, you let
0: us know the name of this endeavor already? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Let me see. It's it's called xcaster.com. dot com. It, there's actually a website out there, up there, but it, it's not finished yet, so the product's not there. And so I've been working on this, and it's, it turns out there's a lot of hard problems in this because that's why nobody's really done it well. There's competitors, but no one's done it well. And um, uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is, you know, this... Um, Uh, You know, it became it's always been a serious subject, but obviously Black Lives Matter has been a serious subject this year. And there's been a lot of focus in the media on, um, you know, unfair, not only harassment, but violence uh, of police towards, uh, you know, African-Americans, but also other types of prejudice and 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 systemic racism and there's been debates about whether there's even systemic racism or not and and on and on there's been it's been a big topic, but several years ago the last time this was a big issue in the news, uh, myself and a friend of mine we started brainstorming well what could solve this violence particularly the police violence and we called up an inventor uh, that had worked on weapons before. Uh, and he came up with an idea that we ran with, and it's it's not really a weapon. It's like let's say let's say you're a criminal, and I need to apprehend you. You're just you just robbed a store and you're running away. Well, th- this device shoots out a steel Kevlar cable at the speed of sound, wraps around you, and you can't get out of it. Like then the more the more you try to get out of it, the tighter it gets. Wow. Uh, to a point, point. and it, what is it it, called? it's called uh, it's called the Bola Wrap, and the company is called Wrap Technologies. And we just went public, or we went public in the past year or so, and uh, we're in hundreds of police departments now. And every day we get phone calls. I shouldn't say we because I'm not involved anymore. But uh, but every day we get phone calls. You guys saved another life. You guys saved another life. Like this actually saves lives. It's like mobile handcuffs, so you don't have to actually physically, you know. There's no harming. There's no, right. you're not right. touching, you're not putting a, a knee on anyone's head. You're detaining a suspect and it doesn't hurt them. I've been rapped many times. It doesn't hurt. It just detains you. And, uh, uh, you know, and there's these police departments are, are, you know, not only is it great to for these officers to know they can go to work and not risk hurting anybody, but they won't get fired from their job. They won't get sued. The, the municipality, you know, L.A. loses something like 60 million a year to um, lawsuits on on negligence. Superhumanize.
0: This technology is a solution for a, a big problem. Uh, socially, definitely, you know, all the things that we've seen happening and, and how it's also impacted not just the cultural discourse, but happenings, you know, uh, even, you know, it, violence and rioting if you take it to the extreme um and often you know r- rightfully so the protests absolutely the protesting and and making your voice heard when you perceive injustice but also economically 60 million dollars in la alone wow. yeah and,
1: and I, I might be off on the number but it's around that and uh uh you know so those are the types of things i'm, I'm interested in is like things that can help people like podcasting, I know very well. So I know what I need. So I don't need to validate the product. Whereas with this rap product, I don't know the police agency. So we, we talked to a lot of police chiefs and, and in fact, the former head of the international police chiefs association is our head of business development right now. So uh, the, the, the founder of, of Taser is the CEO of this company now. So, cause that was supposed to be a non-lethal weapon. It turns out that it's lethal. So he's the CEO of, of rap now. And, um, uh, you know, things like that. I'm, I'm always interested in investing in or starting. So, uh, I haven't started a company in a while, but this Xcaster company I've, I've started and rap I'm just now an investor in.
0: Very, very cool stuff. And, you know, I love the uh, scope of our conversation. We have talked about so many different things and you're in so many different things. Um, something that I'm really curious is about about is how do you manage your energy efficiently? You know, because, and for example, when you work, you multitask, you focus on one thing at once. And uh, do you have advice on how to stop wasting energy and operating at peak level?
1: Yeah. You know why that's an interesting question right now is because this moment, I actually am not good at it. Like I was good at it for so long, like for basically 15 years. I mean, even in 2020, I did five podcasts a week. I wrote two books I I started a company Xcaster. I made investments. I was performing comedy, um, you know, in different states where the lockdowns were were over, you know, particularly towards the end of the year. And then suddenly like in December, I got I got burnt out for the first time in maybe forever. And so I think I either I think I overused energy, maybe I I bit off more than I could chew because I was just sitting at home, so there was like I could do infinite things it felt like. And and then I just I got uh, as as you know I got I got punished for some of the things I did, which is like I wrote this article trying to help New York City. I, I I presented what I felt were the problems people were in denial about in New York City. It turned out they were in denial because they all trashed me rather than uh, dealing with the issues.
0: And I want to interject real quick for the um, for the listeners that are not aware of it. This is an article you published in August of 2020. And you described in it why New York is not coming back this time. And you went into great detail economically, socially, culturally. Yeah. And that's actually something I I wanted to ask you about. Uh, We spoke a bit about it before we started recording the podcast. Um, But what your thoughts are on New York and, you know, will it come back? Are you still down on it? Or will it take many years? What do you see happening right now there? And what are your predictions?
1: And in, in that article, I mean, I grew up in New York. I was born there. I've lived my entire adult life there. I've had many ups and downs there. I've been broke in New York many times. I've had success in New York many times. Uh, you know, but I love it overall. I, I So many friends, family, everything are there and, and experiences. And New York City is just an amazing cultural city. And I don't want it to die, but I kept seeing these problems and researching the data and I would talk to very smart people what do you think about this and they're like ah don't worry about it that's that's not real it'll come back and I'm like no 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 it's already out of business this is half a million people already unemployed from new york like and their companies are out of business what do you, what's going to happen and like ah nah, don't worry about it it's, once there's a new mayor once there's a vaccine it'll be all okay and I'm like no, no no if they don't raise the money from taxes they have to fire workers which means fewer services fewer garbage collectors fewer police which means Fewer people will want to move to New York because there'll be less services and that'll death spiral down. And I called up presidential candidates, mayoral candidates, congressmen. I called up the Federal Reserve to see how. what are the possibilities for New York City getting a bailout. Uh, And I had some ideas that I pitched to them just independently to help New York City. And then I wrote this article and everybody's like, I don't need somebody from Idaho telling me about New York City. I'm like, Idaho? What are you talking? I've never even been to Idaho. And... And just so many people. Uh, so a lot of people loved it, but then they, they, and they and learned from it, but they went on with their lives like normal people. And then the people who hated it all let me know. And it was really, it was like I was punished for writing something that I love about something, something that I loved and something that I wanted to help. And it's almost as like that stole all this energy I had and my brain told me you can't hey hey man when you when you sit down the right don't forget they punish you for for doing that
0: and especially i mean new york is is just a a topic for people who live there definitely but i feel it's it's such an iconic city around the world it's not just a city it's a kind of a lifestyle attached to it so people will likely react instead of act they perceive that as negative, even though I didn't even perceive it as negative. I just thought you stated some things that really uh, deserved looking at. And of course, when everything is going well in New York and all the things that we love about New York, we we don't look at it,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I triggered, I think I underestimated the cognitive dissonance I was going to trigger. Like if somebody have, has made their life in New York or bought real estate in New York or their they their whole family lives there and maybe they don't have the choice to move for whatever reason they they're, they're going to get very offended rather than say okay yeah let's solve these problems so new york city doesn't you know fall apart
0: how did you deal with the fallout of that because um you know obviously you have a lot of experience being in the public sphere uh, i can imagine though that that could have you just said also it, it drained your energy i could have imagined that also to be an emotional drag in a sense
1: yeah and particularly like i was so on fire productivity wise Uh, then suddenly to get such a backlash, like 30 million people read that article. I've never had an article that widely read. Mm -hmm. So even 5% hated it. That's 1.5 million people hated it. And, uh, you know, and at first I was fine. Like for many months, I was fine. But like four or five months after that, it just, you know, I was dealing with like family members were writing articles, trashing me. Ex-girlfriends were writing articles, trashing me celebrities of course were trashing me, not just Seinfeld. Like I don't care about him, but, uh, other, other people that I had respect for and, and I have a lot of respect for Seinfeld as a comedian. I think he's a great comedian. Um, he had, he had a book coming out. Um, so he, the New York times gave him space to do an op-ed two weeks before his book was coming out. His book's excellent. It's called, is this anything? I highly recommend it, but he used his op-ed his first op-ed he ever wrote in his life to trash me the entire time, but not address the issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just that, you know, and I always, what I do is I call, I, I, I diversify my dopamine. So if, if writing is not giving me dopamine, then I have podcasting or business or comedy or chess or my investments or my friends, family, you know, spouses, whatever. whatever. And, uh, but there was a bunch of things happening at the same time. That one being the biggest, the article that just, I wasn't getting that diversification of dopamine and I literally just like shut down and became burnt out. And it's a new experience for me. And so I've been ex- researching it. I had a, a world expert on burnout uh, come on my podcast. I think that one was released today or yesterday. And it's just been, you know, from what I understand, I it's like a time thing. I just have to sit this out and yeah. uh, re- recover because there's dangers in being burnt out and not respecting it like this one woman I spoke to was went blind psychosomatically while she was enduring her her phase of burnout and uh uh you know so that's that's another reason why I figured okay my childhood love chess I'm gonna get back to and just get really great at it and that's been working out and and I've poured that energy into that yeah but I but I don't really know how to answer the question now because before I would have answered it that uh, I just only do things I love. I don't waste any other time. Uh, why waste time on things you don't love? Just do the things you love. And that was how I was very productive.
0: I also truly love and respect that you're being so open and vulnerable and speaking about the burnout. You know, it's uh, tough to deal with. Of course, the you know there's things involved with it. you probably learned that from the expert you had in your podcast yesterday, like the adrenals being depleted and the flip side of this. and This is something I've been dealing with all my life on and off you know, is uh, then you're very prone to anxiety or panic attacks. So any ways that you can basically boost your adrenals and and get that um, functioning a little better is so, so super helpful.
1: The problem is like, like what ends up happening when you're burnt out, particularly, you know, I was involved in lots of different and still am involved in lots of different projects is you end up letting people down because you can't be as involved. Like they, you know, I'm very productive, but no one really knows if you work with me in one area, you don't really know all the work I do in another area. And if I can't do anything, I'm just letting down people in all these areas and it becomes hard to juggle to to keep it up. Like tonight I was supposed to fly from Florida to Philadelphia to perform comedy for the weekend, but I'm just not gonna do it, I just couldn't do it. And uh, uh, you gotta really respect what's going on. You know, life is short and you've gotta really respect what's going on in your mind and your body. And you can't help but disappoint people, and but that becomes a stress too. You have to learn how to deal with the stress of disappointing people. Superhumanize.
0: If you don't take care of yourself, you can't continue taking care of others. Are you taking any steps um, you know, physically addressing the, the depletion and the burnout? Are you taking any kind of um, supplements or superfoods? Have you looked into that?
1: Yeah, no, and I, I've always been doing that stuff. In my book, Choose Yourself, I described... Uh, kind of a daily practice I do, which is, you know, pay attention to exercise and sleep and food. So physical, emotional, take care of your emotional life, creativity, write down the 10 ideas a day, spiritual, you know, always look at like a bigger picture so that you don't regret and that you don't feel anxiety. But even that's hard, you know, because of course, like you say, I'm going to feel anxiety if I'm letting people down. Yes. Yeah, and and definitely different supplements and things like that and i feel like i've gotten a little better but it's just a process so i'm just doing i'm just doing what i can do and now,
0: something that i heard and it's completely legal in the united states that um uh, you may also have heard about but is ketamine treatment
1: yeah so i i did that it's it's an utterly amazing fascinating experience like i've had friends of mine who have talked about psychedelics on their podcast and stuff like Tim Ferriss does some excellent podcasts about psychedelics and he funds psychedelic research at Johns Hopkins. Um, and so I figured I'd try this. Um, my doctor recommended it and I tried it and it was utterly, utterly fascinating like, it's really like an amazing experience, particularly like it was under medical supervision and you're in a doctor's office and, and it's like you go on these, literally these trips and, and to do it while meditating is like an amazing experience, like amazing. But I don't think it was, I think actually, it. I don't think it was helping my burnout. I think it was making it feel like more okay to be burnt out because you, you realize even more that there's a bigger picture to the world. So there's no one thing you need to be anxious about. So it's great. I could see how it's great for anxiety, but I did need to get some things done. And, <laughs> you know, ke- ketamine just is like, oh, it's all okay. And not, not so blase, like maybe marijuana might be, but ke- ketamine's such an intense out of the body experience that you come out of it thinking, yeah, this world is kind of an illusion and there's other worlds out there and, you know, I can go in and out of these other worlds. And I don't need to do these projects because that's only on this one little world. And so it wasn't quite what I needed. Um, and I, I even was getting more migraine headaches. And mm. I kind of, well, that could be my fault. I convinced them to give me like an extremely high dosage. And uh, which, which, you know, probably I shouldn't have done. But, you know, that was part of it.
0: Man, I, you know, James, I am you and you just actually shared uh, some of the practices that have been important in your life with, uh, you know, in the book, um, uh, choose yourself. So it's, uh, I'm just super, super grateful. I've had this time with you. um, On top of having your burnout for you spending so much time with me and talking about everything, you truly are one of the most interesting, man.
1: I appreciate it. And you're, you're a really great interviewer. This is a great podcast. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad you had me on the show. And and I would add that um, it's not like I just sit in a room and do nothing. I kind of, I, but I had to divert my energy to just something brand new. And, and then I decided to do it productively, like, okay, do the skip the line techniques work to get me to be like a grandmaster at chess or, you know, there's little things I can do like that that are are soothing to me, and at the same time, still make me feel like I'm improving at something. But all a hundred percent of the things I was doing before, I'm I'm having trouble with. You know, ranging from comedy to writing to business and and so on.
0: Well, you know, my my heart, my mind goes out to you. And uh, if I can be of service, I have a little bit of knowledge with. Uh burnout and anxiety and having developed programs for friends that actually work well I am super happy to send you something let me know you know I'm your go-to herbal <laughs> herbal witch uh, yeah
1: bring it on I'm, I'll am <laughs> i try anything look I really will try anything Have I tried ketamine I was never in the market for trying ketamine before and you know it's an experience it's a it's yeah. it's it's neither life-changing but it's but it's definitely life noticing like it'll definitely yeah. stand out <laughs>
0: And I understand what you mean. The one thing is to realize that there's a bigger picture and there's other things we can uh, be doing. We don't need to focus on this one world and all the things that ail us. But the reality is we still have things that are going on, people to take care of, and I personally have found uh, especially the there's certain herbal formulations in the traditional Chinese medicine and also Ayurveda that work cumulatively and um, slowly strengthen your entire system, you know, from your mind to your body to also your spirit. And the uh, traditional Chinese medicine they call a shen, it's the, the, the heart mind, you know, this is also so any types of herbs that will strengthen your shen. and and make you more relaxed, easier going uh, are used by, for example, Tibetan monks and uh, have been used for many, many thousands of years. And I found those have given me great relief over the years from, you know, feeling like my energy is drained from feeling anxiety and become a little more distant to the nagging of all these small problems. But at the same time, seeing them and being able to work with them, uh, work them off my plate with ease and without feeling so stressed about them
1: yeah i think i think that's the key is like being able to balance the demands of the real world with Mm -hmm. the demands of your body like it's not easy you can't just say well look i gotta take six months off see you later everybody but wait you were just in the middle of this project that involved 100 people's paychecks depending on you you can't just stop and that's the truth so i i still have to stay involved but i have to figure out how to balance my depletion of energy yes. with that and, and i think the something like the ketamine makes you feel like okay you, be cool with the burnout you don't have to do everything but again it's not totally practical in the in the real world
0: yeah and you want to go to the root causes uh, for example in tcm they like i just said so the one um treasure there's three treasures is the shen the heart mind energy on, um, there's Jing, which is basically the energy you're born with, um, you know, so what you get from your parents. And if you burn too much of your Jing, that's actually when you get sick, and when you die. So you want to make sure there's ways of, of repleting of refilling that Jing account of yours. And then there's Chi. That's the energy that we'd expend every day, you know, when you're active, whether you're practicing sports or doing anything. And so you want to kind of nurture all of these three treasures to function optimally. And to me, just as a, as a, um, you know, herb aficionado and, um, looking in from the outside, it seems like, you know, Hey, you're a man of so many different trades, uh, your Jing may be depleted. And then of course, also your Shen, your spirit, heart energy, uh, has been, uh, has been rattled especially the experiences of last year you personally had we all have been going through it and yeah maybe worthwhile looking into that if you're up for taking different herbs and it doesn't bother you to throw those Uh, in your smoothies or your coffee in the morning i i'm happy to send you some suggestions
1: absolutely i I would love that and i think all three i think all three of those energies i was peaking on really for years like i was doing great and i really was good at balancing them because i'm I'm very aware of 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 those energies. And, uh, uh, and then it just all got, it's like my tank suddenly there was like a hole in the tank and everything spilled out. And yeah. that was that.
0: That's a great analogy, James. And uh, yeah, so my offer stands. I'm I'm going to email you after this. And if you want to take me up, it is my pleasure. It's one of my things in life that I love is sharing what I've learned, uh, you know, with regards to that over the course of the last 12, 15 years and, and help people with these uh, amazing plants and formulas, some of them that have been used for thousands of years to so just, um, yeah, feel like yourself more and feel at ease more
1: I would I would love that I will I will t- take you up on that so cool.
0: excellent <laughs> so I'll,
1: I'll send you my address and I'll pay whatever like just send send what you got
0: <laughs> outstanding so we'll do that well James it's been amazing amazing to speak with you after all these years that I've been following your work oh, I love thank your you. mind love what you put out there super grateful that you've been my guest today.
1: Thank you so much and I'm I'm really happy to be here and it was great talking to you and and hopefully we'll do this this again in the future. Absolutely. And I want to take these herbs so of course yes. we're going to be in touch.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much James.
1: Thank you. Superhuman eyes. Accelerated evolution.